Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers nearly a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. If I asked you right now to list all of the subscriptions you pay for, would you be able to? I really thought my answer to that question would be a resounding yes. But with the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find some sneaky ones I must have forgotten to cancel before the free trial ran out. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting slash kid subscriptions, though they all seem like really small amounts, when pulled together, that's a pretty big chunk of your spending money out the door. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Looking for your next binge worthy podcast? For good beer, interesting true crime, and a few laughs in between, check out Fireside Crime. The hosts of Fireside Crime unleash their southern accents and somewhat dark humor on some true crime stories, conspiracies, and scandals that rocked the nation, all while enjoying local beers Fireside. Grab a beer and join them by the fire. Check out Fireside Crime if you want to listen and have a few laughs. Find Fireside Crime wherever you listen to your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. The year 2020 was filled with a number of issues that will forever change our history books. Many were events and issues that one would hope we didn't have to still worry about after years of perceived progress. The main example being the systematic racism that has plagued our nation and the protests that took place and brought awareness to this constant issue. The case I am going to cover today is a hard one to hear. It's one I debated on covering, but in the end, our history needs to be remembered so we can learn and progress. Today, I will talk about the murder of Emmett Till and how it became the spark that began the next phase of the civil rights movement. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. 
Emmett Lewis Till was born on July 25th, 1941 in Chicago, Illinois to Mammy Catherine and Lewis Till. And when he was just two years old, the family became part of the Great Migration that moved rural Black families out of the South to gain opportunity and fair treatment. They moved to an area called Argo that was soon dubbed Little Mississippi following this migration. At this point in history, Black Americans were vastly disenfranchised, excluded from voting, made more than $200 less in household income, and still dealing with segregation and Jim Crow laws. Life was incredibly unfair for families like the Tills. Mammy and Lewis separated in 1942 when she found out he was being unfaithful and had a lasting abusive relationship for many years. And Lewis will later be executed for the rape and murder of an Italian woman just a few weeks before Emmett's fourth birthday. A few years later, at six, Emmett contracted polio and left him with a stutter for the rest of his life. Mammy eventually met and married a man named Pink Bradley and moved to Detroit with Emmett. But he always loved his home in Chicago and eventually moved back there with his grandmother, his mom and stepfather joining a year later. Unfortunately, Mammy's marriage didn't last and Pink went back to Detroit not long after their marriage began. He would later return to threaten Mammy, resulting in Emmett grabbing a butcher knife and telling him to leave or he would kill him. He loved his mother and would do anything to keep her safe. Their move back to Illinois proved to be a good one, though, and Mammy soon got a job as a civil clerk for the Air Force, earning a much better salary while Emmett kept up with the home. One summer, Mammy's 64-year-old uncle named Mose Wright came to visit them in Chicago and told Emmett what it was like in Mississippi Delta, where he lived and where Mammy grew up. Emmett loved hearing his stories, so much so that he wanted to see it for himself. Mammy had planned a vacation for the pair to visit family in Nebraska, but after constant begging, agreed to let Emmett go visit his uncle Mose. She did, however, just before leaving, caution her son about the dangers of being black in the South. She said that Chicago and Mississippi were very different places and that he should know how to act in front of white people in the South. Mississippi alone had seen 500 lynchings since 1882, and racial tensions in the South were historically and notoriously extremely high, especially following the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education ruling that earned some major pushback. In fact, just a week before his arrival, a black activist named Lamar Smith was shot and killed, and the three white supremacists responsible were soon set free. Emmett agreed, assured his mother he knew how to act, and she let him go. It's a decision that she would live to regret for the rest of her life. Emmett arrived in Money, Mississippi on August 21st, 1955. On the 24th, he and his cousin Curtis Jones skipped church and joined some local boys when they decided to go to Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market to get some candy. The shop was owned by a white couple, Roy and Carolyn Bryant, and it was 21-year-old Carolyn who was alone in the shop on the day Emmett and his friend and his friends came in. Now, exactly what happened that day in the store is still heavily disputed to this day. According to his cousin Curtis, Emmett showed his new friends a photo of his integrated classroom back in Chicago and bragged that not only were some of them his friends, but that he was dating a white girl in his class. At that, the local boys dared him to try and speak to Carolyn behind the counter. Another version of the story told by Simon Wright, another cousin present that day, said there was no photo and no dare was ever made. Some say Emmett then catcalled Carolyn to try and get a reaction from his cousins and new friends. 
that he was always joking, and that this was simply another attempt to get a good laugh. Others say that whistling was a way to alleviate his stuttering, and that he was not whistling at anyone in particular. Others say he boldly grabbed her hand and said, how about a date, baby? And when she took her hand away, he told her, I've been with white women before and were promptly asked to leave. Regardless, something happened that day, and the boys who lived in the South and saw the Ku Klux Klan night Riders almost daily knew the implications of what he had just done, and news of what happened at the store began to spread quickly. Carolyn's husband, Roy Bryant, came home from a shrimp hauling trip on August 27th and was greeted pretty quickly by a regular at the store who told him what happened to Carolyn. He was furious and began aggressively questioning several of the black men in his store to try and figure out who this Emmett was. Eventually, he found out it was a boy from Chicago staying with Moe's Wright. In the early hours of August 28, 1955, 24-year-old Roy and his 36-year-old half-brother, John Williams Millam, drove to Moe's house armed with a pistol. They demanded to know which of the boys staying in the house was the one from Chicago. Emmett's great-aunt tried to offer the men some money in hopes that they would leave the boys alone, but they refused and rushed to the now-identified Emmett to put on his clothes and come with them. Mose pleaded with them, saying he was from the North and didn't know better. But John simply asked the preacher how old he was and said if he wanted to live to see 65, he would keep his mouth shut about what just happened. They drove the 14-year-old boy, terrified and unsure of what was happening, to the store so Carolyn could identify him, but later said they didn't have to because Emmett admitted to speaking to her that day in the store. The men then tied him up in the back of the truck, drove to Money, Mississippi, and took him to a barn in Drew where they pistol-whipped and beat him so brutally that passersby could hear him crying from the barn. At some point in the evening, Emmett Till was shot and thrown into the Black Bayou Bridge in Glendora, Mississippi, near the Tallahatchie River. Mose Wright stayed up waiting for his nephew, but when he did not return, grabbed a friend and went looking for the young boy. He returned home empty-handed around 8 a.m., but said he did not want to call police because he feared for his life. Hearing this, Curtis Jones placed the call to LaFour County Sheriff and then to Mammy Bradley. Roy Bryant and John Millam were brought in for questioning almost immediately and admitted to taking the boy to scare him but claimed they released him in front of the store that same night. They were arrested for kidnapping, and word spread like a wildfire about Emmett Till. Soon, Medgar Evers, the Mississippi State Field Secretary for the NAACP, and Amzie Moore, head of the Bolivar County chapter, got involved and, disguised as field hands in the cotton fields, worked to get any information they could on the missing boy. Unfortunately, it would only take three days to find out exactly what happened to him that night in the barn, when Emmett's swollen, nude, disfigured body was found by two boys fishing on the Tallahatchie. His head had been bashed in, had two gunshots above his right ear, an eye dislodged from the socket, fan blade tethered to his neck with barbed wire to weigh his body down and could only be identified by a single piece of clothing that was left on his body a silver ring with the initials LT carved into it. Emmett's body was soon returned to Chicago, where his mother insisted on a fully public funeral with an open casket, saying she wanted to expose the world to what they did to her baby. Tens of thousands passed Emmett's casket, 
and his photo was published all over the U.S., which was met by false information claiming riots took place. While subsequently running photos of the murderers in their military uniforms to try and detract from the tragedy of Emmett's death and the legislative changes that clearly needed to be made. Immediately, officials got involved and the Mississippi governor promised a vigorous prosecution while the NAACP launched a full investigation. Many, even those who did not believe in racial integration, were appalled by the violence a 14-year-old boy was subjected to. But from the beginning, there were issues with the case. One of which came when the sheriff, who initially helped to identify the body as Emmett Till's, changed his story to say that he doubted the identity was accurate and that Emmett was off somewhere alive and well. This led to speculation that the NAACP and civil rights advocate T.R.M. Howard planted the body to try and further their case. And while both Roy Bryant and John Millam were indicted for the murder, many worried that, despite the compelling evidence, it would be nearly impossible to secure a guilty verdict. People raised money for legal fees, law firms worked pro bono, and everyone did what they could to make sure that this trial happened and justice was served. The day before the trial began, a young boy named Frank Young told the prosecution that there were two witnesses there in the barn that night, both of which were employees of John Millam and forced to be there when the murder took place. Their testimony, which would have greatly helped the prosecution, was never heard because they were booked into a Mississippi jail so they could not attend the court. Things like this kept happening as the trial began, and the defense worked hard to convince the jury that the body pulled from the river was not Emmett Till's. And because only a flashlight was lit the night that he was taken, Moe's Wright couldn't positively say that it was Roy and John who took him. The moment Moe stood up for what he saw and dramatically pointed to John saying, there he is, is described as a historical moment for the civil rights movement. That it was the first time in the South that a black man had testified to the guilt of a white man and lived. On September 23, 1955, after a short 67 minutes of deliberation, an all-white, all-male jury found Roy Bryant and John Williams Millam not guilty of Emmett Till's kidnapping and murder. About a year later, on January 24, 1956, protected by double jeopardy, both men publicly admitted to the murder in an interview with Look Magazine and earned themselves about $4,000 for their story. According to their version of events, John shot Emmett after he called them names and said he was as good as them while he was being beaten in the barn. To say that the reaction to the interview was extreme would be an understatement. Emmett's murder and the subsequent admission caused prominent civil rights leaders to push the federal government and contributed to the congressional passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and was followed very quickly by the Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama. Without his death, these actions could have taken much longer or not even happened at all. In 2017, information from a 2008 interview with Carolyn Bryant was released. In it, she said she fabricated the most sensational parts of her testimony, that nothing he did justified what happened to him. In the end, Emmett Till, at just 14 years old, accomplished more historically than most of us ever will. Unfortunately, it cost him his life, which seems like a large price to pay.
Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 25th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.